It is uh, podcast number five for the Sir Reply, and um, I think we'll just uh, get started. <laughs> Dive right in. Yeah. So we have, there does seem to be kind of a theme this week with, um, uh, I guess, violations of people's privacy and their, you know, physical integrity, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, so I'm not sure where we want to start. Start. You can pick a person. All right. Well, I feel like kind of a quick one is um, the situation with the Atlanta Falcons and Eli Apple, who is a uh, prospect from the Ohio State University, emphasis on the, um, <laughs> who was, I believe, the NFL Combine um, recently being interviewed by the Atlanta Falcons, including one of their assistant coaches, who um, asked Mr. Apple, um, point blank, do you like men? To which Eli Apple responded, no, I don't. And then apparently um, the assistant coach's response was, well, you know, in Atlanta, there's a lot of that going on, so you better get used to it. Which is just, a, A, it's illegal to ask that type of question in an interview, which I think is probably for purposes of this podcast the most important thing to mention. But I, what was going through this guy's mind where he thought this was an okay thing to ask and then a follow-up comment like, you better be okay with gay people because there are a lot of them in Atlanta – because as a 20-something-year-old kid, he's not around any gay people. Like, it's not like he lives in a cave somewhere. <laughs> right. And what I also thought was kind of odd is the um, assistant coach is, like, 37. This wasn't not that older people, it's, you know, acceptable for them to have bigoted, ignorant uh, beliefs. But you would think that, you know, it just seems like younger people, why why would this thought be running through his head? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that um, I when we were when I was doing prep for our podcast today is that people do use that phrase that these are illegal questions and there are actually no illegal questions right I mean you can ask whatever you want to ask but what makes it quote unquote illegal or just you know in common parlance a bad question to ask is that essentially whatever questions you ask your candidate really um, can, like, you can draw inferences from those questions as to your motivations as to whether or not you're going to hire or not hire an individual. So the idea of asking someone, like, are you pregnant? Are you married? Are you gay? Mm -hmm. That lends um, this this inference that you have discriminatory intent behind whatever action you take with respect to the candidate. So if the candidate doesn't get the job, did you not get the job because you answered yes to any of those questions? Or did you get the job and then you're working and then something happens? This is information that your employer knows about you, and that can't be the basis for any employment action. So, you know, that's why these questions are prohibited insofar as that you can glean discriminatory intent from them, but in and of themselves, they're stupid questions, but they're not illegal questions. That's a really valid point. No one can arrest you or sue you just for asking that question. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting. A lot of times when people talk about, you know, at-will employment, which is generally um, if you have a job, you're an at-will employee, which means you can be um, released from employment for any reason or no reason except any legal reason. Mm-hmm. Generally, that'll fall into the um, realm of discrimination, which, you know, if Eli Apple made out a claim that, you know, he didn't get a job 
Although being drafted and as opposed to being hired, I guess, throws a little wrinkle into things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for him to be able to say, these guys are asking me these questions and I'm not going to get drafted because they think I'm gay um, seems to be really problematic. And it's not like the NFL doesn't have enough image issues to begin with. So um, Marquand Manuel, who was the assistant coach for the Falcons, has come out and said he apologizes for his question. He can see that it was inappropriate and um, offensive to people. He's gone through some counseling. I think the whole Atlanta Falcons staff has, right? Right. I think he went through some uh, individual counseling (laughs) and then had to participate in the group session, um, but that he will hopes to become a better person through this. I don't know that that really helps Eli Apple. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, I... I don't follow a lot of NFL gossip, so I don't know if this was a rumor that was running around about this kid or if it will impact his draft status. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there was some talk back when Michael Sam came out prior to his um, draft year. He may have actually come out in the combine, you know, talking to teams. I can't quite remember, but um, certainly – was an openly um, uh, gay athlete at the time of the draft, and uh, I think there is a feeling that his draft stock dropped because of that announcement, and mm-hmm. now he's out of the league and appearing on Ladies of London on Bravo TV oh. Network because he made friends with one of the women on that show. So I know that he played in the Canadian Football League for a while and then left the team under circumstances which were not disclosed and so he never returned to the team that is my understanding that yeah he has not um he didn't go back to his cfl team and he's not currently playing is it the alouette i believe so yeah so i mean the montreal weather can get to everyone <laughs> having lived there for three years but i i don't think that was really michael sam's issue so so, so I guess the combine has had a history of having individuals ask um, inappropriate questions and even stupid interview questions. <laughs> and there's nothing to stop anyone from asking stupid interview questions. I think that one of the questions that Cam Newton had a problem with answering is whether or not if if you were a pet, whether you were going to be a cat or if you preferred being a dog. And um, again, it's a stupid question, but. You know, a lot of people sort of read, like, how to interview books, and they think that they can um, figure out a person's psychology or a person's motivations by how he or she answers questions. And, I mean, these are dumb questions. But um, there were also – I can't remember who the athlete was where they asked him if his mom was a prostitute. Was that Des Bryant? That was Des Bryant, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And Des Bryant, as those of you who follow the Cowboys or football may know, I believe was arrested while he was with the Cowboys for beating up his mother. There was some kind of domestic incident between him and his mom. Not that that has anything to do with uh, whether the inappropriate questions he was asked during his interview, but – just another criminal issue. And since we're mm-hmm. talking about sports and the law, seems kind of relevant. <laughs> so um, NFL teams, if you want to have some training as to the kinds of questions that you should or should not be asking during the combine, you can give Burke or I a call. We can certainly like work you into our busy schedule because it seems like this every single year there's a story that comes up where one of you has done something really inappropriate and kind of offensive. Just let them let them live. <laughs> let them live. Eli, Eli Apple, I hope he has a lot of success in the NFL, and it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out. Because apparently he's the only person, I think, that's publicly come out and said that this happened, but other um, uh, young men who were at the Combine prospects were um, asked questions, I think, along the same lines, um, kind of de- trying to delve into their um, 
um, sexual orientation. So, by the same person or by different people? I believe it may have been other people on the Atlanta Falcons oh. staff. I could be wrong about that. Although Brian Cox, their d- defensive coach, did get in trouble for beating up uh, another um, coach. He shoved him and oh, since right. had to yes. apologize. So I could be conflating the um, inappropriate interview questions with all of the other problems the Atlanta Falcons <laughs> are having right now. Um, um, so that was a that was one of our quick takes. And I guess another quick take would be um, Aaron Andrews is a fairly quick one. I think so, yes. Um, so Aaron Andrews, uh, again, for those of you who follow college football or baseball, is a um, sideline reporter um, who used to work for ESPN. She's now with Fox. And um, while she, I think, was pretty well known, at least by college football fans, um, you know, early in the 2000s, she became kind of a national figure after she was um, surreptitiously filmed in her hotel room getting changed by a stalker who was able to um, get the room next door to hers and and her room number and her room number and, um, you know, mess around with the peephole so that he was able to um, film what was going on in her room. He was convicted, um, I believe, of stalking and other crimes associated with the videotaping back in 2009 and sentenced to like 30 months in prison. Um, But Aaron Andrews followed up with a civil lawsuit against uh, the man who actually perpetrated this crime and the hotel in which it happened. That suit was filed back in 2011, um, and the trial just wrapped up last, this week, I think. Yeah, it was this week. Um, and she was awarded $55 million in damages for the emotional distress that she suffered as a result of um, this filming. So I guess, um, you know, Jen, one question that I had when I was reading this was, how is she going to get that money? You know, it's a huge chunk of it was um, associated, or I guess, um, attributed to the stalker who I have to imagine does not have $28 million that he can pay her. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining that he, she's not going to see any money from him because um, he probably, I don't know what his situation is, but I'm going to assume that he's not gainfully employed since he's gotten himself out of jail. Um, and so he doesn't have the $28 million to cough up. I would imagine that he would probably file for bankruptcy. Right. Um, and instead then, of having to have this like over his head. Like, right. And he could probably, it should be discharged through the bankruptcy case. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so then the other, the other party that was also found contributorily negligent was um, not Marriott. It's West End Hotel Management Corp or something like that. Uh, so Marriott, like a lot of other large hotel chains, doesn't own every single Marriott property there is in the world. They franchise a lot of these, um, uh, a lot of their hotels to smaller operators. And really the control that Marriott has, if you can put the Marriott name on the hotel, is basically like, here's the book of all the rules you have to follow. Right. But the day-to-day operations, including in this case security operations, is not the uh, provenance of Marriott, you know, the Megala corp- Corporation. It's really up to the individual operator. And the individual operator was found to be contributorily negligent because the stalker was able to get Aaron Andrews' room number and he was able to request the room next to hers, which is not something that is supposed to happen. You, you know, as a hotel guest, you are, you know, you are provided some level of privacy and security by checking into these hotels where you can't, if you go up to the front desk and, you know, like, uh, can you give me so-and-so's room number? They're not supposed to give that to you. They're supposed to pick up the phone and they're supposed to call you and let you know you have a guest in the lobby. And even when you call into a hotel, 
uh, you can ask to be connected to somebody, but you can't have them provide you with like, you know, personal private information, including the room number. So, so that was where the, um, the hotel operator was found to be, to be negligent in the situation. And they're on the hook for $26 million. Um, I don't know how large this hotel operating, uh, group is certainly it's not Marriott. Um, they're, they might own a number of smaller hotels in the South, which is where mm-hmm. Vanderbilt, I think is where it happened. Right. I do think the, um, Company, I'm actually looking at the complaint that Aaron Andrews filed back in 2011 as we speak. Um, and I believe one of the defendants, um, Windsor Capital Group, which I believe owned, may own West End, uh, hotel real estate group is based out of Colorado. So it may be a, um, just a, a a public or private equity group that owns a bunch of hotels throughout the country. Um, but yes, they did, uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Hopefully we can edit it out. Um, so, so they're on, so they're on the hook for $26 million. They have appealed the verdict. Um, and if they haven't done so already, they have said that they would. So it'll be tied up in the appellate courts for a while, unless, uh, Ms. Andrews's legal team and the legal team for the hotel group can sit down and negotiate a settlement amount for probably a smaller amount, but at least it would be, you know, guaranteed money or at least money now as opposed to waiting for the appeals process to work itself out. Um, so that's a possibility. So she could settle for, you know, between 15 and $20 million. Right. Um, instead of the whole $26 million. Uh, and then there's the issue of taxation, which is something that we talked about this morning. Um, I think under the IRS code, if you receive money for damages um, related to a lawsuit, the IRS doesn't tax that sort of compensation, for lack of a better term, if it's related to physical injury. So if you broke a leg in a car accident and there's like the medical costs associated with that and you are you know, compensated for that, the IRS won't tax you for that. Um, but because Aaron Andrews sued under the theory of, um, you know, resulting in emotional distress, that doesn't actually have any sort of physical hallmark. Of course, it can manifest itself in many ways, um, but not according to the IRS. So she would actually be taxed probably at like a 40% tax bracket on that amount of money. So there's going to be a big chunk of that that will go mm-hmm. to the federal government, um, which, you know, de- I guess debating whether mental de- suffering versus physical injury should be treated differently is a, a, could probably be its whole own podcast. It could be. and But it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily um, – I mean, this is an IRS ruling. Oh. It's not a medical determination or, or you know, a psychiatrist determination. It's just the IRS determination. So, um, and then the other thing is her attorney's fees. Right, which, um, you know, presumably, as the defense went to great lengths to point out, Miss Andrews um, has a very successful career. So, you know, there's a question of whether 
she may have hired her attorneys on a contingency basis, which is, um, I think, pretty typical in kind of personal injury cases mm-hmm. um, and civil suits like this. So if you don't win anything, then um, the uh, victim or the plaintiff wouldn't have to pay any money for their attorneys. Um, but given Miss Andrews, um, not that I have details about her finances, but she seems to be a pretty successful, well-paid person. Um, she may have been paying them all along. So mm-hmm. whether she can recover those amounts from Marriott and um, West End Capital and Windsor Capital, I think, is the other group that she was suing, um, would be a, another issue. Yeah, and if she did, wasn't paying them... Um, on an hourly basis or whatever arrangement they had. And it was on contingency. Uh, most contingency relationships is what, like 30%? Uh, yeah, and it's probably before taxes. So mm-hmm. she's not going to see a ton of this money, which, you know, I don't know that that's really based on her comments after the verdict. You know, it seemed like she was kind of trying to take a stand against um, hotels that didn't clearly didn't sufficiently protect her from this guy who was stalking her um she made a comment in her testimony that that if they had just told her about him that he'd been calling asking about her she would have known to call the police and they could have kind of headed all this off um which leads me to believe that he had been stalking her prior to the incident which i don't think i had been aware of uh, before this trial and so that just uh you know it seems like a real failing of the hotel and how they could defend themselves against that i'm really not sure i think they tried to pin all the blame on Mr. Barrett, yeah, um, who was the stalker basically saying, um, I'm trying to remember, they had some, they had some quote that was like, uh, you know, well, you can't prevent, um, something else about you can't prevent something bad from happening all the time. It's just a risk you take staying at a hotel, which seems a little crazy given that they intervened so as to let this guy get close to her and um, commit this crime. Um, but one, I think my big takeaway, setting aside the, the really significant verdict, was the some of the tactics that the defense used in their um, uh, in making their case. That basically Aaron Andrews' career has done nothing but get better since this happened. Um, so that it was really it was a great thing for her career that she was uh, you know violated in this way. Um, and then trying to pin all the blame on the guy who actually committed the crime, which, I mean, that makes some level of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but kind of the victim blaming here, it just seemed, I don't know, you know, on the one hand, as an attorney, I totally understand the idea that you have to zealously defend your clients. And, you know, they are just doing their job. Here's something that you can point to, like, how much suffering could you have possibly gone through when mm-hmm. you're a bigger star now than you've ever been? Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the flip side, it just seems really icky (laughs) legal term of art um, (laughs) to basically say that, well, you know, you don't deserve any kind of recognition that a crime was committed against you because your career has done well since it happened. Mm -hmm. Like you're essentially in a better position now than you were before. So we are, you know, we shouldn't be held responsible for, for any of it. Right. Um, One of the, I mean, you know, there's the, there are the defensive tactics and there are also the offensive tactics, which, um, you know, included the fact that, you know, Erin Andrews showed up to court with probably very little makeup on. She doesn't, she didn't look like the person that is necessarily on the sidelines for football games or when she was on Dancing with the Stars. Um, she wore fairly demure suits and, um, 
and you know and that is a tactic as well just to make her relatable that she's not some glamorous person that she really was you know deeply affected by this and um so i mean it's there's gamesmanship on both sides that's that's very true um you know she does i will say this for erin andrews she has glorious hair and it (laughs) was not on display at all during this trial and yeah i think that's right you know not only to make her relatable, but probably also to make her look like, um, uh, I hate to put it this way, but kind of to make her look like a better victim, right? You know, there are so many questions when um, a woman, and not that men are not um, violated by other people, but typically with women, you'll see like, oh, well, look at what she was wearing. It's kind of basically saying that this person deserved whatever they got. and are uh, victim blaming. Right. So, you know, I think probably to make her look like a very kind of um, demure, innocent person walking Mm -hmm. in with her button-down shirts and pantsuits. Clearly something that her lawyers did work since it's a really significant verdict, and I think it's a real step in the right direction, hopefully with hotel security, that they Mm -hmm. ensure that people are protected um, from lunatics who want to videotape them. Yeah, I was reading uh, Barrett was – like an insurance salesman who seemed like he had a fairly normal life and then right. he just sort of snapped and fell in love with Aaron Andrews in a very scary, stalkery way. Yeah. So hopefully this will give her some closure on this piece of her life and she can move on. Though, as I say that, um, reports came out just before the verdict was reached uh, that one of the I'm not sure which of the defendants he worked with, but um, someone who had actually testified in the trial was caught at dinner in Nashville with a group of people watching the Aaron Andrews video. So this may never end for her. Um, It's just a sad situation. Hopefully she continues to be a successful sportscaster. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the video lives on the internet forever now, and I think that was part of why the verdict was so large um, as, like, recompense for the fact that this was not a a one-time thing that has, you know, has a, a beginning and an ending chapter. It really is this ongoing problem that she's going to have to deal with because there will always be someone clicking, you know, to watch that video. And I'm sure, I think part of what she testified to were all of the lewd remarks that she, that gets yelled at her on when sure. she's doing her sideline reporting and, you know, from oafs that are just, you know, basically assholes out there um and that's probably not going to ever taper off right i think that's true and you know someone had done in one of the articles i was reading as research for today you know somebody did the math and figured out that it's that video has been viewed something like 17 million times so she's basically getting like three bucks for every view of the video um, which certainly makes it sound somewhat more um, 55 million sounds like a giant chunk of money and three dollars a view for every person who has been sort of party to her violation mm-hmm. doesn't seem like uh, such an outrageous number no so. um yeah so that was really all I had on Aaron Andrews I mean it feels like it's been such a long saga um, mostly because you know, I think it happened in 2008 right mm-hmm. so yeah it's been going on for eight years now so yeah. So hopefully it, it can wrap itself up. I mean, there's obviously the appeals process unless they can come to some sort of negotiated settlement. But 
uh, you know, maybe for her and for the rest of us, we can we can start moving on to other things. And just judging her based on her silly sideline questions that she asks <laughs> from time exactly. to time. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> judging her on her abilities or inabilities to do her job well, right. as opposed to a video that was made of her at her one of her most vulnerable moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I guess that actually leads us into Kesha. Speaking of people who are very vulnerable and taken advantage of, yes. So a lot of things jumped out at me because of what's been happening with Kesha and Luke Gottwald. Um, I don't know why they call him Dr. Luke and maybe because he's so extraordinary at producing or whatever, but maybe he's just an asshole who decided to call himself Dr. Luke because he's that self-important. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) we could call each other doctors, but we don't because we're (laughs) self-aware. True. Um, He could have a PhD in music or something for all we know, but yeah. So, um, for those of you who haven't been paying attention to what's been happening, um, Kesha filed suit against Dr. Gottwald in and around 2014 to essentially release her from the contract that she had entered into with him some years before that, you know, if she were to record six albums, they would be, he would be the producer, they would be for him, for his label imprint, Kimosabi Records, which is a division of Sony Records. Is that even spelled right? Kimosabi? Yeah. I I think it is. I guess it's being translated from Japanese, which yeah. doesn't use the same alphabet, so yeah. it's probably up for debate, but sorry, um, no, I digress. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, so she had filed a civil suit here in California. It had been transferred to New York because um, there was probably no jurisdiction in California because the contract was entered into in New York. Um, so it was transferred to New York, but I think as part of the transfer um at some point, Kesha's legal team decided to try to enjoin, like actually request an injunction to mm-hmm. essentially um, not necessarily like break the contract, but to prevent her from having to record any more music with him or have his involvement with her recording career. Um, and an injunction is, you know, for this is the the law part of our show, (laughs) it um, basically is an extraordinary remedy to either make someone do something or to keep them from doing something. So a lot of cases where injunctions are actually successful is like um, if you live down the street from a large plant and they're polluting and it's, you know, uh, creating environmental hazards or it's like harming your your children or your pets um you can file an injunction and and have the you know shut down the factory temporarily to figure out whether or not what is actually happening is harmful and so or you know very recently they tried to enjoin um production at the sriracha chili sauce factory because of the um the chili uh Oils in the air were creating like, making people yeah, sick. Yeah, making right? people sick. So they, you know, they tried to keep that. They tried to shut them down, not permanently, but it's a temporary injunction just so that basically both sides can like cool off, figure out, you know, whether or not things were actually happening. And um, wasn't that also an issue with the bacon bacon restaurant in San Francisco that like the bacon yeah. smells were making the neighbors crazy, and yeah. so they tried to force yeah. them to. I think mm-hmm. they actually were successful in shutting them down <laughs> until they could resolve their ventilation issues, but. <laughs> Um, so, yes, an injunction is uh, what we like to call an equitable remedy because it's not about money. It's about um, 
preventing some, as I said, preventing someone from doing something or making them do something that can't be fixed with money. So a lot of times you will see, you know, uh, temporary restraining orders are a form of preliminary injunction. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of cases where you have people fighting over money, you will not get an injunction because money will always fix the problem or money will solve the problem. You can just pay them. And that's not something that requires this extraordinary relief. Right. The kind of the key thing about getting an injunction is proving that there will be irreparable harm if we let this go on. So like if I have a tree in my yard, but my neighbor says it's their tree and I want to chop it down, you know, that's something where we could, they could get an injunction because once you chop the tree down, you can't fix that. Yeah, you can't regrow the tree. Yeah. But if um, I'm saying if you do this, it's going to cost me money, that's not that's not harm because even if they did it at some point later on, after all, everyone sued each other, they can just pay me the money back plus interest. And that'll fix my problem. Yeah, that'll fix right. my problem. Um, so... So basically what the judge did in New York was deny her request for an injunction. So it's not the end of the story for Kesha. It's just a temporary setback, I think, is an important thing for people to understand. Right. And I think, you know, that's really a key fact here because a lot of this has gotten a lot of news or kind of traction, particularly with celebrities. Um, the, I think the judge's decision came out right around the time of the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has followed kind of award season knows that Lady Gaga was up for an Oscar um, for her song, um, If It Happened to You or Till It Happens to You, um, which is about her, based in large part on her um, own rape by a producer she worked with. Um, she is alleged back when she was like 19. And so what people have been interpreting this decision as is that the judge has said that Kesha has to continue working with Dr. Luke, who Kesha alleges drugged and raped her and abused her for years during their um, professional relationship. That's not quite, to Jen's point, that's not quite what happened. What the judge is saying is that, you know, I'm not going to break the contract now mm-hmm. pending resolution of the, you know, broader, you know, kind of breach of contract trial. Um, so it's, you know, it's not quite as simple as I think um, the uh, celebrity reaction would have folks believing. Mm-hmm, exactly. And um, part of it was that the judge cited in her decision was that Sony had offered to allow Kesha to fulfill her contract by keeping Dr. Luke out of the process. Like ultimately he would be getting royalties from her music if, you know, she put out additional albums, but she wouldn't have to work with him. She could work with other producers. And so they would build essentially like a wall around him. And, um, and that, was not good enough for Kesha and her legal team because I think, at least from what I read, it was because he would somehow benefit from this, from her recording, even though he would not be at all involved on a day to day or even, you know, a, a bigger picture involvement in her music career. Right. And I think there's also a separate issue that Sony has, because Sony was definitely um, kind of painted as a bad guy by people in the press saying all Sony has to do is say, it's okay, cash, you know, they could voluntarily let her stop working with Dr. Luke. The issue that Sony has pointed out is that Kesha actually has a separate contract 
I'm not sure if it's with Kimo Sabe or with Dr. Luke personally. And apparently through that contract, even though Sony, you know, she could not be in the same room with Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke under that contract, I think would still have the right to pick her producers. So um, even, even though she might not have to see him on a daily basis, um, there's still a level of control he would be exerting mm -hmm. over her career that clearly she's not comfortable with. Um, but, you know, to Sony's, I guess to Sony's point or in their defense, if it's a separate contract that they're not a party to, mm -hmm. there's nothing they can do. Yeah. They could certainly, I think, push Dr. Luke to, um, you know, maybe release Kesha, but it does seem like he doesn't want to do that because he feels like it would be admitting guilt based mm -hmm. on his, um, he tweeted twice about this incident um, shortly after the injunction was denied to basically say, um, I have a mom and I have sisters. I would never do anything like this, which I feel like is like a racist person saying, I have a black friend. I can't be racist, but setting that aside. Um, <laughs> he has, he has sued her for defamation. He, so, yes. Um, he is very vigorous in his defense of his inaction or, you know, non misconduct. Um, but no, Sony can't get involved in a contract where it is not a party to the contract. And right. While they can assert pressures on Dr. Luke because he is under contract with Sony, Sony cannot um, do anything to impact um, his relationship with Kesha. In, That's totally independent of yeah. them. Um, and some news that broke, I think, this week um, is that there are rumors now that Sony is trying to cut ties with Dr. Mm -hmm. Luke. Um, recently, I think it was at the Brit Awards in England, um, Adele came out publicly in support of Kesha. Taylor Swift gave her like $250,000 toward her legal fees. Mm -hmm. Kelly Clarkson has been, um, interviewed and quoted as saying, Dr. Luke, you know, she didn't have any kind of physical confrontation with him the way that Kesha is alleging, but she said he's really a bad guy and she felt like she was blackmailed into working with him and he stole credit for some of the songs that she wrote. Um, so it does seem like Sony's starting to feel the pressure when you've got the Adele's of the world being like, Dr. Yeah. Luke is um, not a good person. We don't mm -hmm. want to work with him. Um, that may be the uh, kind of push that Sony needs to try and get out of its deal with Dr. Luke. Yeah, and I don't think that um, – I haven't seen the contract between Sony and Dr. Luke, but I'm sure there's no morality clause in there. So sure. it might be very difficult for them to breach the con their contract with Dr. Luke. I mean – I, again, I don't know what out clauses they have or on what grounds, but, um, you know, in this country and under our legal system, you know, contracts are, are fairly sacred. If, yeah. you, if two parties have knowingly and willingly and at arm's length entered into a contract, um, there's not, you know, courts aren't really readily wanting to break those contracts outside like very extraordinary circumstances. I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think Kesha, it sounds like Kesha's hope in her sort of the trial on the merits in this is going to be arguing that the extraordinary circumstances that give her justify her wanting to break her contract is that Dr. Luke raped her. Um, again, now to be clear, this is uh, whether or not we personally believe Kesha. These are all allegations. Um, part of, I think, the uh, argument being asserted against Kesha is that she and her family didn't go to the police, um, that this wasn't raised as an issue until she decided she didn't want to be under contract with Dr. Luke anymore, um, which optically certainly doesn't look good, but definitely doesn't mean that she's not telling the truth. So that's, I think, going to be a pretty controversial piece of the upcoming breach of contract or trial. One of the things that I found um, troubling is that this incident 
was alleged to have happened in 2005. Right. And at the time, um, it might have been right around the time that they had first signed the contract, but uh, there was a fight over who she would have as her manager, and she picked someone that Dr. Luke didn't want to have as her manager because he wanted to go with some other individual. But Kesha and Dr. Luke didn't speak for two years, so and she seemed to have you know gone on with her life in those mm-hmm. two years. Not to say that the rape wasn't a serious allegation, but what I'm trying to say is that it isn't as if the fact that not speaking to Dr. Luke for two years necessarily hampered her career, right? I mean, she had a manager and she appeared in like festivals and she went and did things. So it's not like her not working with Dr. Luke basically puts her career full stop over. I mean, that's right. Although it does, I think there was some issue in the timing of when she signed these contracts of when Dr. Luke got more control basically got more control over her career, which then, of course, and again, this is not meant as a um, sort of victim-blaming conversation, Mm -hmm. but it does raise a question if, you know, this person had done these horrible things to you, um, did you really want to sign a contract with Mm -hmm. them? Um, Which, you know, unfortunately, it gives Dr. Luke and his defense team, um, you know, a lot of possibly specious arguments to make against Kesha, um, who is appears to have something clearly I think has uh, bad happened to her just based on um, how much she seems to be struggling with what's going on with her career right now. But um, it'll be interesting to see how it all kind of pans out. So the other troubling thing um, for me as a lawyer, not as a human being is that um, <laughs> important distinction. It, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, because honestly, even if she, even if Dr. Luke didn't rape her, but he did all of these really demeaning things and was like, sure. you know, psychologically abusive to her. That's not, um, that's not inconsequential either. And why would you want to work with someone or feel that you have to put your career in this person's hands? Um, but in 2010, uh, her manager, the one that they fought over in 20, in 2005, Sonnenberg filed a civil suit against Kesha for $14 million in commissions that he was owed. And she was deposed during the civil suit, and she, under sworn testimony, said that uh, Gottwald did not physically touch her or rape her. And this is problematic because this contradicts her affidavit that she submitted with her civil suit, saying that in 2005 she was raped, she was drugged, and then raped by, by Dr. Luke. So she has, I mean, for his defense team... I mean, that's just impeachment 101 right? To, for anything that she says. Like, how can you believe her when she's, you know, under sworn testimony said that this didn't happen? Right. And it's, you know, one of the now because it was all under sworn testimony and she's available to be kind of cross examined at this point, you know, hearsay rules likely wouldn't be implicated. But there's this theory about, you know, making statements against interest, Um and, you know, if you can use that to impeach somebody's, uh, you know, later statements. Um, so to, you know, to say, well, now when she's looking to get out of this contract with Dr. Luke for whatever reason, she's going to turn around and say, well, he raped me and mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to work with him. But, you know, five, six years ago when it wasn't convenient for her to make that allegation, mm-hmm. even though it was after the time when she said that the um, – assault had occurred you know that's definitely going to be a big hurdle i think for her legal team to have to overcome Mm -hmm. um doesn't doesn't look good for kesha um but all this i guess is to say that you know simply because these kind of circumstantial or 
optical issues um it looks bad doesn't mean that something didn't happen to kesha but yeah it's um i guess we'll find out as the trial process moves along so yes um i don't know if there is a motion to dismiss pending mm. but if the motion to dismiss isn't granted um things should move forward and i think that you know discovery will happen and all the rest of like civil litigation stuff mm-hmm. happens um and the trial would probably be set for february of 2017 mm-hmm. so next year and so in the meantime at least based on Kesha's public comments, she has no ability to record any new music unless she does so with either Dr. Luke or I guess a Dr. Luke approved producer. Um, So what impact that has on her career, I guess we'll may never know. Um, I know Jack Antonoff, who is dates Lena Dunham of girls fame and is also a Sony represented musician has publicly offered to work with her. If there's a way to, get around the Dr. Luke issue. So. Um, I don't, I can't imagine that, um, you know, as we, as we both have said, Sony has set it up so that, you know, she wouldn't have to have any contact with Dr. Luke if she were going to, if she chose to record. Um, but I can't imagine that it's in Dr. Luke's interest or in Sony's interest to pair her with a crappy producer. Like, right. And it's not in her interest either. Um, so yeah, I would think, I mean, Jack Antonoff produced, uh, I think out of the woods by Taylor Swift, which has done very well. So, um, there's, you have to think that there's going to be a resolution of this, mm-hmm. uh, some mutually agreeable, um, compromise because I don't think Sony or frankly, Dr. Luke can sustain it another year of the kind of yeah. bad press that they're getting with absolutely really, um, important women in the music industry saying they don't want to work with him and, um, having a forum and a reason to talk about what a miserable guy he is, whether or not he is a criminal as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so a lot had, has been made of this, but I think it's, you know, part of my overall mm, annoyance with how people like sort of throw around like, oh my God, you know, the judge denied her injunction. And that means that she's going to be like marched back into the studio to deal with this person all over again. And, and that's not what it means. And, um, and it's just, taking a step back and trying to explain like this is just a part of a process and yeah it's an ongoing and lengthy process and it can and it can have consequences mm-hmm. but it's certainly not the end of the story it's right this is definitely a kind of procedural first step that i think she was hoping would get her back in the studio and back to working because i don't think she's recorded any new music um at least since she filed suit against Dr. Luke and Sony in you know 2014 and in the pop music world being away for 2 years that's a long time yeah so. um it is absolutely and that was what one of her expert witnesses testified to during the preliminary injunction hearing is that the shelf life of a pop star is insanely short and money can't fix this because if you're not Um, if you're not out there in the public eye and selling your music and, you know, your soul and all of that stuff, people will forget you. I don't know that people will necessarily forget Kesha because of everything that's happened. So she's obviously remained in the public eye, but the fact that, um, you know, as a society, like the pop music taste sort of shifts as well. I mean, that's, that's sort of an ephemeral moment that you kind of need to capture. Right. I'm not a fan of Kesha's music, so whether she releases music or not, I'm like, meh. Yeah, I, it's uh, definitely, I think, um, 
loud and very dancey as someone, uh, I want to say it was Ozzy Osbourne, which referred to music like this as music to have a seizure to. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not in her like demographic either. So it's probably fine. <laughs> right. I have some friends who are in their early twenties who are very, very upset about not getting any new Kesha music. And oh. that's, I mean, that's a group of people who have, um, I suppose it's more teenagers that have their parents' disposable income to spend, but you know, it's a it's a group that has a lot of uh interest in the pop culture, so we'll see how this all pans out for Kesha. Yeah, like if Bon Iver released a new album, I'd be all over it. But yeah, it's, it's... I know the new Mumford album was a little disappointing. It was a little too electronic for my oh. taste, but you know, it's uh less electronic than Kesha, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Um, so there's actually been a couple of other updates. Um, the Dennis Weidman suspension that we talked about, I think, was it last time or the time before? I can't even remember now because we've had so many podcasts. Yes, I, it was our, it was our hockey podcast. I want to say that might have been number three. Um, so yes, his suspension has been cut in half. Uh, I believe he is now, by this point, he served his 10, the 10 game revised suspension. He's so actually he's, served 19 of the the original 20 games so he has money coming back to him got it um so he's back on the ice for the calgary flames but um adding a new level of intrigue (laughs) is um so colin campbell is a um really unfortunately named guy who is a vice president i think with the nhl and he was the one who first did the hearing with dennis weidman and handed down the 20 game suspension Colin Campbell's son, Gregory, plays for the Columbus Blue Jackets, previously played for the Boston Bruins with Dennis Wideman, and they are very close friends. So apparently in the midst of all of this going on, Dennis Wideman texted Gregory Campbell to basically say he was only apologizing because the stupid media and the stupid refs made him do it. And it was this text message that um, Commissioner Gary Bettman cited in finding that Dennis Wyman wasn't actually sorry for anything he had done um, when he upheld the 20-game suspension before it was reviewed by an independent arbitrator. Um, so the fact that the fact that Gregory Campbell plays in the league and his dad is a big-time um, kind of administrator for the league has caused a lot of issues, I think, for Gregory Campbell in his career. And this is just yet another example of people involving this guy in um, a situation where on the ice he had nothing to do with it, but basically saying, well, it's, you know, your daddy's boy and now your friend is getting Although his friend didn't get preferential treatment, so I'm really not sure what this has to do. It's just everybody. It's the opposite of preferential treatment. Right. right. Yeah. They um, There had been an earlier incident um, where a guy hit Gregory Campbell and then um, Colin Campbell, because he's in his 60s and apparently doesn't understand that email exists forever, sent some obnoxious email about how, you know, Mark Savard, the hitter, um, was just a big baby. And, <laughs> Um, awful things about him. But. How did Campbell Sr. get the text? Did I don't know that he did. Apparently, the, see it or? the NHL in the in an I guess in an arbitration proceeding before the NHL, neither side can say we're not disclosing these text messages. So it was just discovered through that oh. process. Although up until Gregory Campbell confirmed that it was him who got the text message, I think today or yesterday, um, no one said that he was the person who was on the receiving end of that text, presumably because knowing that his father was involved at the start of this whole incident, um, the NHL didn't want to bring that kind of distraction on itself. The last time that Colin Campbell was involved in a 
email situation that also involved his son. It was kind of a big scandal for the NHL. So um, I think they probably wanted to avoid that happening again. So unless the the recipient of those checks actually helped set some sort of foundation for the text, I don't think it mattered who the text would have gone to, right? Because the whole point is that Weidman wasn't sorry that he actually hit the linesman. Right, and I think that may have been um, sort of the point in why they never disclosed who the text yeah. had gone to. It's not that they said it went to somebody else. They just didn't disclose. People had heard it, it went irrelevant. to. Yeah. Exactly. I think people in the media had heard that it went to Gregory Campbell, but nobody, mm-hmm. um, uh, nobody confirmed that. So I'm reading. It's actually a story by Josh Cooper of Puck Daddy, which is the Yahoo Sports hockey blog, um, where he notes that because it was an arbitration hearing, neither side could say no to a request of cell phone text message records. Um, Campbell apparent looks like Gregory Campbell may have turned over his text, but he didn't, um, in his comments to the media, didn't divulge exactly what the text message said. So it does seem odd. I guess, uh, the argument is that because it's a private court, you can't say no to discovery, but that does seem a little weird to me. So maybe I'll look into this further <laughs> and get back to you guys next week. Yeah, I, um... I was just dealing with a really large subpoena, Deuces Tecum, that's a subpoena for, like, documents, and um, and you can object. <laughs> like, I objected to those. And this yeah. Wasn't like, and this wasn't court court. This was more of a private sort of administrative hearing structure. Um, but, <laughs> so, sorry, not to get off Dennis Ryan, but I think part of the problem that I have with this, um, it's fine that the uh, independent arbitrator reduced it to 10 games and like I don't really I'm not quibbling with the punishment here mm-hmm. except for the fact that the 20 games or the punishment in general comes from a deliberate hit right and this is something that we mm-hmm. talked about ad nauseum in our prior <laughs> podcast which is can it actually be deliberate when you've been concussed and everyone says that he was concussed so it can't you can't do something intentionally if you have like essentially no you lack the mental capacity to form intent yes yeah. so Okay, so that setting that aside, I mean, he should have been punished for the fact that he was just a giant jackass afterwards, as opposed to the initial hit. And I mean, I, maybe that's what the twenty games was about, but maybe Batman could have articulated that better. I don't know. Right, and I do think that Batman was very. So Gary Batman himself is a lawyer. He used to work for the NBA and then ended up with the NHL. Um, but he, I think, he chose his words very carefully in his decision to make it clear that you can't turn around and you can't do something that certainly appears intentional and then turn around and blame a concussion on it mm-hmm. or blame it on a concussion. I guess. Um, now, given the uh, wealth of concussions that happen in the NHL, that would be a really dangerous precedent to set, which we also discussed mm-hmm. at extensive length in our prior podcast. Um, but I, you know, I would think that the way the independent arbitrator got around the minimum 20 game suspension was to say that he was clearly yeah. suffering some kind of mm-hmm. mental incapacity and couldn't have formed the intent to do mm-hmm. this on purpose. Um, so our last topic, um, sort of on the same lines as um, the Weidman thing, is the fact that Tom Brady had his day in front of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, right? It's the Second Circuit? Yes, it was a, what is it, just a, a committee of these Second Circuit judges? It could go, if they, whenever they come up with a decision, they could appeal it to the full yeah. court. Yes, so generally speaking... Uh, when something is appealed from the district level court, it goes to a three judge, 
panel of the appellate uh, circuit. And um, the deflate gate decision that was nullified by Judge Berman, that's his name, Berman? Yes. That was appealed by the NFL that we talked about the color briefs and all of the color (laughs) of the covers of the briefs um, to the two or three panels of judges from the Second Circuit. And oral arguments were earlier this week. No, last week. Last week. They were last week. And I read an article, and it was on Yahoo Sports, but I can't remember. I can't attribute it to uh, the uh, journalist because I can't remember. Probably Dan Wetzel, but... It, yeah, it might have been, no, it, I, I think it was someone other than Dan Wetzel, but it was pretty hilarious because he basically started off with because um, the NFL as the um, appellant, no, you're the, yeah, the appellant. They're the one making the appeal. Yes, so yes. Not the appellee, the person who's being <laughs> appealed. appealed. Yes, the appellant, they sort of, they go first. And I guess the three judges sort of laid into the NFL, um, you know, about, uh, Various topics, and so the way the article was written, they were like, "Oh, the NFL's really getting it socked to them, and things are looking bad for the yeah. NFL." Until it was Tom Brady's lawyers trying to get up there, and then things sort of switched. And this is very, this happens fairly often in yeah. terms of um, oral argument because the judges basically want to pick at both sides' weakest points and just pick and pick and pick and see what you know falls out of that whole um, the back and forth. So it's not. It's not abnormal for them to kind of go after both sides, right? And it, what it appears the big issue that the um, judges caught onto with the NFLPA's argument was Tom Brady's destruction of his cell phone. Um, they, and listen, I'll admit it seems real weird <laughs> that he um, destroys his cell phone on a regular basis, allegedly for privacy reasons. We're not famous, so we don't know. That's right? <laughs> true. And, you know, knowing that the NFL offices leak like a sieve, I wouldn't want to turn over my phone that probably has, um, you know, sex from Giselle that <laughs> Roger Goodell could then leak to TMZ. God knows. Um, but it, it doesn't look great for Tom Brady. The I guess the, the argument that I think the PA is trying to make is, listen, no one told him he was going to get – his punish could be stepped up based on the, the not turning over the physical cell phone. And the NFL had access to all the text messages on the phone, which is really what's at issue in the case. Um, there are allegations that he was texting back and forth with the ball handlers um, to, you know, uh, get them to deflate the balls to whatever he – the level of PSI that he preferred. Um, so – you know, on the one hand, it seems like there's not a lot of there there, but it's certainly it doesn't look great for Tom Brady to be like, oh, yeah, sorry, I conveniently destroyed my phone on my three month cycle just when you were looking for it to mm-hmm. investigate my um, alleged wrongdoing. And I think that the um, the argument that he had no notice that the destruction of the cell phone would be problematic because I think it was in the Wells report that. He did destroy his phone. I mean, right. But Ted Wells took a lot of offense to the destruction of the phone when he then said Tom Brady was maybe generally aware of the fact that the balls were underinflated. <laughs> so he should be suspended for four games and the Patriots should have to pay a million dollars in his draft picks. But um, anyway. <laughs> but setting that aside. Yes, um, it was an issue. And it was noted in the Wells report. Yeah, this so, didn't come out later. Exactly. So there was. Uh, um, Generally speaking, the you know an investigative report comes out, and then the punishment is determined. And after that, then there's the hearing and all that back and forth. So it wasn't as if 
the cell phone issue came up during the hearing or during like Goodell's decision. I mean, this was, this was something that was known. And um, I think their argument about notices is not a, a winning argument, but. Um. Right. I think the, what I think surprised some folks who are following this pretty closely is that I don't know that the cell phone issue, it didn't seem to really factor into judge Berman's initial decision and it didn't seem to be a real big issue at all in front of the district court. So for the appellate court, you know, I believe they're reviewing this on a de novo basis. De novo. So mm -hmm. they don't just, you know, kind of take Judge Berman's word for what happened. They get to review everything all over again as if it were brand new. Right. Hence for de novo. <laughs> um, so for them to have keyed into this, I think, was a little bit surprising. Um, although I'm not sure how surprising since it did seem like one of the more uh, – the weirder aspects of the case to begin with, but yeah, it was definitely a salacious detail. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you really honestly don't know what a judge will focus on or fixate on, um, in reading the papers. It could be something that you don't think is, is very significant, but they may. And it's like, it's kind of a crapshoot. Right. So it did sound like from the reports, um, that there was one judge who seemed very pro NFL, one judge who seemed very pro Tom Brady and then Denny Chin in the was in the middle, um, who I think asked pretty tough questions of both sides. So, um, it'll be interesting to see sort of where this goes. Um, this does have the NFL, well, to take a step back, usually these panels, it can take months for a decision to come out. Mm -hmm. The NFL, um, I understand, has requested an expedited decision because um, I think they would certainly like to avoid having another season with this hanging over the league. Um, but should the panel, whenever the panel's decision comes out, um, I would assume it will be appealed up to the full Second Circuit. Um, but now Tom Brady may still be suspended for four games so we won't find out until um, this decision comes down. Do you down. think it'll actually be appealed to the full second circuit? I mean at some point both sides have to think about cutting their losses because but they haven't yet. They haven't yet which I understand because I mean I would appeal the sure. district judge decision sure. because I just feel that he actually wasn't understanding the Federal Arbitration Act and why people arbitrate yeah. as opposed to something else like go to court. Um, but, you know, as you said, they don't, they've asked for it to be decided on an expedited basis because they don't want it hanging over them for another season and appealing it to the full panel or the full second circuit would have this hanging over them. Well, I guess it depends, right? If it's the NFL, if the NFL loses in front of the panel, I mean, I frankly think that, you know, judge setting aside my, my admitted bias, you know, I think judge Berman's uh, justification for overturning the arbitration uh, ruling was basically that Roger Dell's not really a neutral. Um, and so then his decision doesn't deserve the same level of weight that a real neutrals um, decision does. And I know that you and I disagree on, you know, your, I think your view is that the NFLPA negotiated yeah. that so they mm -hmm. should have to live with it. Um, I want to believe that, Damar Smith is smart enough that he knew that this is what was going to happen. So that's why he maybe agreed to it, that knowing they could challenge these. That's a big gamble to take. Yeah, and I don't know that D. Smith is as smart as I'm probably giving him credit for, but. <laughs> well, but also, um, did he negotiate the last contract? I don't know that he. I, I believe he, so, because when was the last lockout? Was it in 2011? Goodell was definitely the commissioner, because I feel like that happened around the same time as the refs. Striking and 
there's a lot of labor unrest in the NFL. I want to say it was 2010 oh, or 2011. Okay, so I, I mean, I just know from having <laughs> spent the last 10 years doing labor law <laughs> that the hierarchy of strong athletic unions is baseball unions, uh, probably the hockey one to some degree. The NBA Players Association is kind of a hot mess, so they probably were stronger at some point. But the NFL Players Association has always been – the weakest of all of the labor unions for pro athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see that because baseball has, you know, arbitration guaranteed money. The NBA has guaranteed money. NFL does not have guaranteed money. So, and they don't have the independent arbitrator. Which and the, they don't have the independent arbitrator. The NHL just, so the NHLPA hired Donald Fair of Major League mm-hmm. Baseball's uh, strikes uh, fame, and um, I believe it was in the last contract that he helped negotiate that yeah. they got independent arbi- an independent arbitrator. They also got a salary cap, which um, was uh, sort of a you and black I mark on. <laughs> you and I both know it's a give and take, right? Yeah. <laughs> so is it more important to have an independent arbitrator or a salary cap, you know, it's, or like can we live with one and the other? So, um, yeah, so we have very differing views on the, you know, the sanctity of contract, but Going back to the original thing. Whether they appeal. So I would think the NFL would want to appeal because regardless of your feelings on Judge Berman's decision, I mean, that's that's setting a really dangerous precedent for the NFL that like anything that Roger Goodell comes up with is just going to get, it's not going to be given any weight in Mm -hmm. court. Um, So I would think that he, I would think the NFL would probably want to appeal. Brady might just want to get it over with. Mm -hmm. Um, now that Robert Kraft's relationship with uh, Roger Goodell has been totally trashed, I'm not sure he would advise Tom one way or the other. But, um, I, yeah, I think it really probably depends on which side comes out on top after this decision. Um, so just going back to a conversation that we had earlier about Kesha and sort of the injunction, I know that in a lot of instances, um, NFL players, and I don't know if Tom Brady was one of them, but they would try to enjoin having their punishments um, levied on them and serving suspensions because NFL careers are so short. So they're saying, you know, the, the argument has been, you know, you have to you have to stop this process now and I can't serve this punishment because my career is so short. This will, like, irreparably harm my career and the money that I earn. But um, to date, no judge has bought that argument because it's – you, if you don't play the game, it's just the money that you don't earn from not playing that game. So right. again, if it's a four-game suspension, they'll let you serve it because if they're found, if the NFL is found to be wrong for making you serve that four-game suspension, the NFL just writes you the check, or the team writes you the check for the four games that you know you sat out. So, um, and in fact, I think it might have the opposite effect where you've just saved your body four <laughs> games. Right. Yeah, I think the average career for an NFL player is something like three years, mm-hmm. um, which may be part of the reason that their their players association is so weak that you lose a lot you of cycle you don't have institutional that. knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the Deflategate continues on. Yes. Um, and as we were speaking, it occurred to me Donald Fair should not be held responsible for the NHL salary cap. I think that was the contract before he <laughs> got involved. So if, if you're listening. 
Don, we, that's not your, it's not on you. <laughs> We're sorry to have impugned you with such a statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's pretty much all we have for this week. Um, I think uh, we would like to talk in depth about the University of Tennessee, um, the scandal that's going on with all the sexual assaults that are happening and the, and the university's failure to protect its students. Um, and that's probably going to take a whole pod. So I would think so. So you have that um, to look forward to. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. So anyways, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.